the character he plays, uh, his last name is Woodcock. What's his first name? In, 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 Reynolds. Reynolds Woodcock, yeah. When he gets the script and sees Reynolds Woodcock, does he go, oh, come on with this. What are you trying to do? I'm Daniel Day-Lewis. Well, he came up with the name. Oh, so. he did. Oh, yeah. oh, so he does have a sense he of humor. He does have a good sense of humor. <laughs>
I, the, the movie kind of, I, I was watching it thinking why why are we in this world of fashion and hot couture and whatever and I was thinking well I think we're here because he wants to say something about style and about how you know you can make it but have you proved anything have you really shown you can do anything with your life uh and I think, yeah, we get that whole journey, I think, through, you know, Day-Lewis's portrayal of this guy, Woodcock. Um, and, I, you know, and I think the ending, you know, I mean, the last 15 minutes, the series of surprises, you know, I think, uh, you know, that makes it all worth it, I think. Uh, you know, I, I liked it a lot. Um, yeah, what did, what did uh, everybody else think? Um, well, I... I don't know. It's so invigorating. It's, you know, it's not safe. It's it's daring, you know. Um, and so much of, I feel like, of cinema that we see today is, is so, you know, resolutely derivative. So, um, it, yeah, I was just, I, to me, it's the film of the year. So, yep. I feel like the same sort of way. It was refreshing to see a relationship that's complicated and they're both um, almost playing a game of chess with one another. They're trying to, you know, uh, trick the other one and, and, and play each other apart. And you you almost get the sense that they are almost like the same person. They're, they're, and when uh, Woodcock sees Alma, like, that scene where she's preparing the omelette for him. And I was, I just didn't know how it was going to go. Mm. And that's what is such... That's what is amazing about uh, Paul Thomas Anderson is because his films, you really don't know what, what is coming next. And right. it's, some, it's refreshing to have that. Like, we have so many predictable films nowadays where you can just be like, right, okay, I get this. And it, you know, um, it just had that moment where it was so tense. Uh, and, and you're like, I, I really thought that it was all going to go horribly wrong and, and then she ended up being arrested or something. Uh, I, it was kind of a twisted love story, but in a way, uh, I I felt it was more realistic than, say, something like, oh, any romantic comedy that you have. <laughs> because, yeah. you, like, real relationships are this thing where you're, you're like, enemies sometimes. And you're constantly trying to get your own way over. <laughs> yeah, but it was an amazing film. And the amount of Hitchcock references in there was like, for like a, a film student, I was rubbing my hands of glee getting every reference. Like, oh, yes, I get this one. The the, the fact that her name is Alma. And yeah. Al- Alma is the name of Hitchcock's wife. I was just like, oh. So giving a clap to Paul Thomas Anderson for that, I was like, he's really... It was like a homage to the Hitchcock melodrama thriller from that era. So I was really glad to, like I say, I give myself a pat on the back. (laughs) (laughs) Marvellous. Well, no, Bianca, I actually wanted to like take this moment to, to digress a little bit because it's just reminding, bringing up Alma Hitchcock is kind of bringing up the idea of the Peter Bogdanovich podcast on, you know, the Brady Sinellis podcast that we both listen to about movies. Mm-hmm. And he's just, you know, describing Vertigo and Alma's like in the car and she's like, oh, you know, I thought the one shot of Kim, you know, 
crossing the street where she was a little wide. But other than that, it was a beautiful picture, Hitch, beautiful picture. And then, you know, gets out of the car and the, the assistant's like, oh, isn't it great that Alma loved the picture? And he's just like, Alma hated the picture. You know, that one little <laughs> criticism. He's, he's such a perfectionist. But yeah. um, no, I, I, you know, thinking about sort of Paul Thomas Anderson as a stylist, as Daniel was saying, I think that's really evident in all of his films. And I just really think that, um, I think the Phantom Thread, he just hit the nail on the head. He's like, I want to make this movie about this obsessive, you know, artist, this sort of controlling guy. And, you know, everything sort of has to be his way. And uh, I was reading an article, I think it was in The Guardian, where he said he got the idea for the film being sick, you know, kind of being in bed. And Maya Rudolph, his wife, is taking care of him. And it's just like, um, there's some weird power imbalance here. Like, <laughs> I'm like this, this, I feel like I'm this great, powerful creator most of the time. And then every once in a while, I realize that, you know, I can be humbled. So I think that there is, there's at least an element of that in, in the movie, so... Yeah. Yes, definitely. Yes, yeah. Uh, I think what is also quite interesting is I read that um, one one review was like Alma is a victim, but I don't see her as a victim. I see her as yeah. this really strong, well developed role. And I um, watched an interview between the actress uh, Vicky uh, Creeps. Creeps, creeps, creeps. I don't know, but um, I saw an interview with her, and then the interviewer was like, "Well, do you see Alma as a victim?" And she was like, "No, she's a strong, determined, smart woman because mm-hmm. she plays 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 like to the same equal game that he's playing, the same level, mm-hmm. and he she becomes." I just love how it all becomes 360 and he's like at the end his head is in in her lap and she's got him where she wants and she knows mm. like you know careful because next time it, it might not just be a, a tiny little bit of, of poison you know she's really got the power plays it's all in her hands now and that was great because it was refreshing to see there was kind of a touch of um, Amy from Gone Girl and her character. Like, <laughs> I don't want to get on the wrong side of her because she's she's. But I like that because it it made, you know, it was a great complicated character who goes from being this. She does develop into a much stronger person, and that was refreshing. I mean, yeah, it's a it's a twisted relationship and. God knows how long those two would last before something de- like devastating happens, but it was mm. it was good, and and I, I admire that the poor Thomas Anderson creates such complex characters throughout his his works. Right. And is there uh, is there like uh, any themes of you know the father father surrogate father that he? started with even back to his first film he's sort of kind of done it you know the the role model father figure character is that is that in this film not really you know it's an i thought this was an interesting choice of anderson's for the uh you know it seemed like the past was something that the characters were basically running away from i mean they didn't spend a lot of time thinking you know you don't hear much about alma's past uh you don't even Woodcock, I mean, he, you know, he, he talks to his sister a few times, 
but they sort of push away whatever happened before the war, which I thought was sort of a statement about that, about, you know, sort of London and, uh, and trying to get past the war and just trying to kind of create a new world. Um, and I, 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 there might have been a sort of an implied loneliness or sort of a futility there uh, implied by the writer-director. Uh, but I, 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 in some ways, it's sort of like that. It was almost like Britain becoming more American, where, uh, you know, like family is like less important or something, you know. Um, unlike, you know, in Europe, like let's say Southern Europe, where family is everything. And, you, you know, you should know your grandma as well as you know your sister, you know. Um Anyway, I don't know. I mean, uh, that's what I, I sort of noticed that, actually. That I thought that was sort of an interesting way to play it. Yeah, I thought that the uh, the part where, you know, he's, he's you know, he's sick in bed and he's hallucinating that he's seeing his mother. I thought, right. um, I thought that was, I don't know, maybe I, I was just uh, a little too into the movie, but I think that was one of the mo- more moving moving scenes of the, of the film and actually, uh, you know, you know, had a tear or two, but I thought, no, I don't know. You're just... right. That's true. Yeah. The, the, the image of his young mother, that, what that, yeah, I, I did. I liked that. Yeah. And I, I couldn't, it was hard for me to connect the young mother stuff to the rest of the movie, but I liked that. It did, yeah. Cause I guess my felt, I felt like the rest of the movie, he was so severed from it. And then, oh, that, yeah. That was yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I, I mean, no, yeah. He's, I mean, he's very cold. He's almost withholding. Um, he's so focused on his craft. He's so, um, really, he's he's like a narcissist. <laughs> he's so obsessed with himself, and of course, like if any of us who have read about great directors, I mean, hello, it's a huge metaphor for like for being a director, for being a creative, obsessive person. To be great, you have to be that way. But you're also extremely difficult to be around, at least to some degree. I'm sure, there are a lovely directors. I'm sure there are lovely people, but I mean, stuff randomly in my head right now the Quentin Tarantino thing going around That's and just fun. it's like well um, he's a great visual director he um, you know he is probably somewhat of an exhibitionist but that's that's another uh, uh, story but well you know, we, should, we, we like, should add that if we're going to mention Hitchcock I mean uh, you know uh, yeah yeah, yeah. Tippy Hedren and other people probably today I don't know if that would fly you know but yeah but right, right. yeah no, so I mean, I think that um, that that is a a very relevant uh, I don't know construct, you know, of the of the artist sure. and their muse, and and that just kind of goes around and around. I mean, Can I, I ask? Oh, yeah. sorry. Go ahead. You go oh, ahead. Oh no, no. I was just going to say what I found was really interesting was, like you were saying, how you the character of the house as well, mm-hmm. like. Yeah. Um, it had that uh, I can't remember in Rebecca the the house that they yeah. the, I, I don't know uh, Madeleine is the name of the house or, or yeah. like the yeah. Overlook yeah the Overlook Hotel yeah. it's this big big like empty space but they're, they're so claustrophobic in some parts and I just found like the way he, uh, poor Thomas Anderson used the staircase you know, to create a barrier between them and how we, we see these, like, just, just the little things, like the fact that they don't share a bedroom and uh, he's like, my bedroom's just down here, but your bedroom's here. Don't don't knock on my door, like, type of thing. <laughs> it, it was very sort of this beautiful big house, but they're, they're so far apart and you just feel like 
the way that the house is almost what you want to be a fly on the wall and see what's going on exactly but like you like you were saying that when you mentioned um directors and obsessive directors i just thought of kubrick and uh, mm-hmm. you know it's that just the shots of how the house was used to that effect made me really feel like oh i can see how how poor thomas anson's been been influenced and it it's good to see that in in a director's work because you know they're you know where they're coming from and that they've studied film and they they've the you know the, the beauty of seeing how the past affects the films of the present it, it really makes everything seem so because it's a change it's a always changing art form cinema right. it's the newest art form that we have and it's constantly changing and uh, that's what what really sort of made me like just think of that when you were just saying about like obsessive directors so sorry to go off on the tangent <laughs> you're pointing to something which i i love about anderson is that it feels like it's all of a piece it feels like nothing's wasted at all it's it's you know it's tied together very literally you know like a dress or something you know where everything is you know i mean and i'm not here to dump on three billboards <laughs> outside ebbing <laughs> But in a, that movie, you know, I, there are a lot of things in it. I still don't really understand why they were there or why they weren't there. Uh, I never have that problem in an Anderson film. Um, you know, it seems like the whole thing has been sort of conceived and set down. And I know he did his own cinematography on Phantom Thread for the first time. And it kind of shows. I was going to ask the panel, everybody, a question, which is why do you think he's uh, so into period pieces? Uh you know, I, I mean, I, why not just set Phantom Thread in the current era? I mean, what is, do, do, you, do you, I mean, he had made, uh, you know, modern, you know, when he made Magnolia, when he made Punch Drunk Love, I mean, those were set, you know, roughly contemporary times. But since then, he's wanted to go back. And I also think it's interesting to go back to a period in the case of Phantom Thread where he'd already been. For the master, why? I mean, why not just? Say, I mean, and I'm not saying I know the answer. That's why I'm asking you. <laughs> I I think uh, personally, I think that it has to do with the idea of craftsmanship. Because to a lot, I mean, this can be argued, but to a large degree, things are kind of gone. You know, digital, if you will. <laughs> so I mean, setting it in a period of like, you know, high fashion in the 50s is, is sort of taking a step back and and with that I think that all, sort of all directors want to sort of do um, you know they want to do period pieces they want to do different things to sort of set them set themselves apart I mean yes he, he did you know he did the master in the 50s but you know I, I feel like this is a completely different world than that um, and I just I think that um, that it's something that he you know that he wanted to do. Um, obviously, but I think that it really has to do with the idea of, um, you know, of him, of him being an artist and him sort of having that appreciation for uh, craftsmanship. And I think just that period really fits it well. Okay. Yeah, that's a very good, that's a very good point. Um, I feel as well is nowadays we don't really celebrate the obsessive narcissists as much. You know, uh-huh. we we right. kind we're kind of very sort of um, all for 
not the victim, but you you know the that side of thing. We don't really anyone that is obsessive and and controlling and a perfectionist. We kind of see those as negative traits now, uh, and whereas before in the past, those you know were shown of uh, as people who got the job done, uh, and now it's almost less about um, doing you know doing the dirty work in order to for the final outcome we you kind of concentrate more we can't really see the bigger picture it's all about now what's in the present and and how a person behaves now it's like we can't seem to transcend that but i feel i'm kind of glad that he does use period um you know sets his films in in a different time because i can't see like a film about the fashion world today with that story that was just as unrealistic as you know <laughs> something right. it's like star wars it's, it's, it just wouldn't work because <laughs> the industry has changed so much uh and also she's you know the character of alma she's not that she's attractive but she's not striking in the sense that she's um you know she's beautiful but she does something down to earth about her whereas I see today with supermodels they really are sort of I don't know alien other worlds <laughs> they, 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 they look like aliens though they're really skinny um, but it just I can't imagine like that would work of trying to set it in, in modern times and, and also the fashion fashion world has changed now I don't feel it's it's less um I don't know. I don't really know much about the fashion world, but I don't. It's very much like a throwaway culture we have. Like we buy a dress, we wear it once, and then we chuck it away. Whereas the dresses that he's creating in the film, you, they're they're something that that can be worn and over and over again. They've got life to them. Like they've spent months working on one wedding dress. Um, but now it's all mass produced so it's kind of yeah I, I feel like with Paul Thomas Anderson he's it's almost romanticizing a period that you know we've we've come to forget he's given birth to it as, as well so right yeah, yeah I think he's um, <coughs> excuse me I think when he made he made his first two films he made Boogie Nights and then there's the they kind of give him like free reign after that they said right go and do whatever you want and Magnolia which is which is probably my favourite of his that was like he got a lot out of his system with that film he went off and I don't know if you know he went um, William H. Macy let him borrow his cabin and he just went and sat in there by himself and he wrote Magnolia in like a really short space of time and then, and then he, filmed, he filmed it in a it, well, in a very long, long space of time, over over budget, over time, everything. But I think that was like getting stuff out of his system because then he made a really quiet film, and then he made, went on to make, um, you know, a film about oil. And I think he's got these, these um, sort of notions in his head, these periods, and these. He's a very smart man, and he's part of history that he wants to sort of depict. And obviously, cinematic eye. Um, I think he's just sort of plucking them. It's almost like a bucket list. He wants to cover that. He wants to cover that. You know, he's, he's very smart. And I think his first, his first four films, 
suggested you would not have guessed it had gone this way but yet it still remained kind of consistent if you watch Boogie Nights now um, you know it, it feels like a kind of Goodfellas at the time you kind of was like a bit of a Goodfellas homage as well but there's, there's some really dark stuff in there and I think he's done that uh, throughout and it's just the period's changed uh, the subject has changed and if you if you spoke if you tried to recommend him to somebody who didn't know who he was you know he's made a film about costumes he's made a film about um, Scientology he's done, he's done oil and people be like oh no no that's not for me but but seriously, this it's 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 amazing. I still watch like the master, and some of it's just still scratch my head. But you still know you're watching like you're still watching brilliance, you know. So it's kind of I don't know if he's still experimenting, but I think he's found his feet after Magnolia. Punch Drug Glove was probably oh, I've just got a little bit more. I just want to just tell you this as well. But now I'm going to go and do what I want to do. Not that he didn't want to do those previous films, do you know what I mean? They were kind of like blueprints. So now he's probably yeah, got I, um, a list in front of him. Yeah, I think the Magnolia is actually a kind of a masterpiece. Yeah. I, you know, I, I when I I saw it like when I was like eleven or twelve, and it's so challenging at that age. It's like, what the fuck is this? You know, but um, it's just it's so good. It's so good, and it's really about like uh, you know, human beings just kind of falling apart and. You know, we just kind of, you know, circle the drain a little bit when, you know, things are falling apart in our lives. But um, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson is a great lover of Robert Altman, who, uh, you know, seemed to do kind of lighter stuff, you know, maybe lighter satirical, um, you know, not comedies necessarily. But, yeah, they were kind of lighter movies, with the exception of maybe McCabe and Mrs. Miller and The Long Goodbye. But, um yeah, he's a real lover of Altman, and I, but I feel like Paul Thomas Anderson definitely has a darker, you know, a darker eye, um, um, a, a tendency to really look at the obsessive nature of his the characters that he follows, especially with the like three of the last four movies he's done with, you know, um, There Will Be Blood, The Master, and now Phantom Thread. What about um, and I really, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Well, you, sorry, you said the last three movies. I'm like, where's Inherent Vice? Sorry, keep going, Ron. Three, three, yeah, I said three of the last four movies. That, oh, that I was just... trying to... <laughs> sorry, you know. Well, again, yeah, he, the uh, Joaquin Phoenix's character is very obsessive in that movie. Um, and that's another one that, that I loved. You know, I loved Inherent Vice the year it came out, and, of course, everyone else had problems with it. But um, I thought it was sort of like his big Lebowski almost, you know? <laughs> But um, I, I really enjoyed it. And, of course, you know, it's about this obsessive guy who's trying to find a girl, you know? He's just, you know, he's so hopelessly, uh, you know, he just doesn't know what to do. Uh, that he can't find this, this person that he loves who, of course, doesn't really regard him that highly anyway. So it's, like, yeah, that, it's very ironic. That coming apart at the seams thing, I think you've sort of nailed it there. I think all his films are about that. I think Magnolia is... Like they're all just losing it from you know, nervous breakdowns, um, illnesses. Um, he's one of his favourite films. His um, favourite screenplays on films is Network. And if you look at that film, Obsession, People Falling Apart, and it, it certainly carried that. I've not seen Phantom Thread, obviously, but um, a lot of his films are like that. People on the brink of, you know, even Daniel Plainview, who's they're all on the brink of of madness or you know losing it coming apart at the seams so to speak well i mean that's something that again uh is is refreshing to see because you know uh 
it's so it's it's great because as a artist you do want to push yourself and you don't want to be a good artist i suppose so to be a great art, artist you do have to suffer yeah. and i feel that, that that's almost what uh, paul thomas anderson is saying in his work with the characters that he you know chooses to focus on whether they they be you know plain view in uh, there will be blood or um you know um woodcock in in uh, phantom fred that they do have to suffer to get what they want and and that they always lose a part of themselves um you know, a bit of that identity goes missing yeah. but i feel like phantom fred is his almost most romantic film to, to like i don't know i haven't actually seen um magnolia all the way through because it's so long <laughs> but, uh, I haven't got the- you'd, you'd, you'd be right it is the most romantic it is the most romantic <laughs> What about Punch Drunk Love? Well, yes. I'm, I'm sorry, but Adam Sandler, I can't get over that. It's like I watched Jack and Jill, and now I'm traumatized. Oh, stop. Oh, <laughs> traumatized for life. Oh, I don't know. Spanglish was good. Meyerowitz stories was good. Sometimes I don't know. It depends how you cast him. I, I, Emily had a great, not a great movie, but a strong movie. Yeah. Billy Madison is a classic, so. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if you saw it when you were 12, I see why you'd say that. Yep. Can I say, I'll just be a contradictory person about Magnolia. One thing I don't like about Magnolia is there's no female dialogue in the last 20 minutes of the movie, and feel free to go back and check that. From the moment the frogs start falling, nah, no woman speaks. And I feel like if, if that's a conscious choice, it doesn't work because nobody knows it until I tell them to that. Uh, and another thing I don't like about Magnolia is it spends the first 15 minutes very exquisitely setting up coincidence and fate. You know, like the, the body coming out of the, you know, the body falling by the window. You know, you're like, okay. so I'm like, okay, I'm like, I got to say this movie more than any movie I've ever seen has set up for a coincidence. So there's going to be a coincidence later with the characters, and I'm going to believe it because they've this filmmaker has really worked hard to convince me, which is awesome. Uh, any of the three of you want to tell me what coincidence happens in the rest in the re- the remaining two hours of Magnolia? I don't see nothing happened. I, I'm like, I mean, you don't tell me frogs falling are a coincidence. A, a biblical <laughs> storm. Not, a coincidence is like you meeting your lover on the street that you hadn't seen in 20 years. That's a coincidence. Frogs falling from the sky is not a coincidence. You know? so, so please help me out. What was the coincidence that he spent the first 10 minutes of the movie setting up? Anyone? No, to be, to be fair, I, I haven't seen the movie in quite, quite a, a few years. Um, right. So I'd be more than happy to revisit it uh, <laughs> because I love it so much. But... Uh, you know, I, and I do want to say this, and maybe it's an absolute cop-out, right? But um, I kind of believe in the power of cinema, and what I mean by that is I believe I, – I, I don't need everything explained. Like, I don't need Oh, logic, I agree. I agree with that. 100%. You know, all the time. And so if something's there and it's just like, what the fuck, and even if it detracts from the movie, I still, I still very much feel like, you know what, dude? You swung from the fences, and most people don't try that. I awesome. agree. You did that awesome. I agree so, with. 
so I, I, it's possible that I'll go back and I'll, I'll look at it and be like, oh, you know what? I have no idea why the fuck that's there. But, you know, <laughs> you know but, but yeah, I, I don't know. I, it's been such a long time. There are other things, I think, in that movie that stand out more, uh, you know, but, uh, oh, yeah. but yeah, I don't oh, know. Robards it, and Cruise, I love that. I mean, that is mm-hmm. genius, you know. There's, but yeah. go ahead, sorry. No, I was done if anybody else wanted to get an explanation. <laughs> well, how about, try to what back about me up? Robin Wright, uh, our, our kind host? To, to, is there a coincidence in Magnolia? Uh, really, if after the first 15 minutes. Yeah, I, I, actually, I don't think he's setting up for that. I think he's just um, been it's a little bit... It's almost MacGuffin. What is he setting it up for, then? Why, why, all the, why the body falling by the window? What, what's the point? I think, he's just what, 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 I think he just wanted, like, a prologue, didn't he? And I think he... <laughs> oh, come on. No, no, it is. you know? Yeah. Well, yeah, but Hitchcock doesn't put in a prologue for no reason. It has no payoff later. Oh, I mean, no, no, but look, Hitchcock does. I mean, the, he, no. Hitchcock uses the MacGuffin all the time. A MacGuffin? At, that's not the same as a prologue. No, it is, but it is in a way because um, Paul Thomas Anderson is creating a MacGuffin there. It's just a way to sort of get you, like, where is this film going? What is it leading to? Uh, no. It's a hook. It's the hook. Yeah. It's not really coinc- coincidences either. It's more that things just happen. You know, so <laughs> you watch the first ten minutes again. Yeah, I did I've watched it, it is, I've watched, okay. I've watched the it a lot. Falling by that window. What what else is he talking about? The thing so that, it is contradictory in this way. So it is contradictory because it, you know, there are chaotic things that kind of happen throughout the movie, right? But it's also like there are there's this biblical element to them as well, and so it's it's almost like this. Uh, I don't know what the I don't know what I'm thinking because everything seems possible, and you know, I, I think it's just a giant metaphor for like being a human and sort of like not not really having the answers, and you're just trying to hold on to anything because you're spiraling out of control. Maybe, I mean, that's, that's sort of a generalization, maybe, but um, I, th- right, I think that, that again, can be read sure. that way. Sure, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, um, we just need to invite Paul Thomas Anderson yeah. onto the podcast <laughs> and grill him about Magnolia, and yeah. then <laughs> we can get the answers we want. <laughs> uh, well, I just thought I'd be contradictory for some fun. I hope you don't mind. Uh-huh. <laughs> but it's well, no, and I, I want to say something real quick. Um, I, I Paul Thomas Anderson, I think, wasn't eligible to receive an Academy Award nomination for his cinematography on Phantom Thread, and, and I don't, I don't remember reading the reason why, but it was some like obscure, you know, um, accreditation thing. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, if he shot it himself, I'm wondering if that might be why. But, uh, but that and uh, Vicky Krebs as as Alma, I think, really should have gotten an Academy Award nomination mm-hmm. for uh, for playing all, you know, for playing Alma. Um, I thought that she was just fantastic. The vulnerability that she shows, and like the, you know, the, all of the emotions that she's holding inside that she that are just boiling under the surface. I just I thought she was fantastic. Uh, you know, Meryl Streep. Seriously, can you, can you just <laughs> wait another year? Yeah, I don't know. Seriously, <laughs> but uh, yeah, what you were saying about uh, Vicky? Uh, that scene where she does the toast and. Uh, and, and she's so loud, and I was yeah. just like, oh my "Spoiler!" Yeah. Oh yeah. Compared to the rest of the spoilers, that was nothing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you know, I could just like, she's just so perfect. We're almost like her comic timing 
it's just mm-hmm. spot on and I don't I haven't seen her in anything else but I, I'm so glad that she's she's almost been discovered hasn't she so I, I would like to see what happens to her career because I think she's very talented well I'm I'm an antagonistic personality so I was laughing my ass off in the theater <laughs> this scene because I am that person if I know something bothers you and like you know you're close to me in any way I'm going to fucking bug you <laughs> it's just like this and knowing I get annoyed at that shit also it's just like I'm both Alma and Reynolds in that scene so it's just this like torment inside my body I don't know it's weird but uh, it's, it's a great scene yeah it's very good yeah and uh, i just like to add to the ending, well, towards the end when she's uh, preparing a special omelette for, for her beloved. Uh, and she pours the water. And that so sound, Oh, gosh, yeah. And I was just, like, <laughs> laughing hysterically in the cinema. It was such a... But it was like a, a tense laugh. Like, I was so nervous because the scene is just played out so so well i didn't know how it was going to go and i was like oh my gosh i was expecting him to just get a, a, a it turns out he's still got that bowling pin from uh <laughs> there will be blood yeah there will be blood he's still got that he's like come yeah. from a long way <laughs> it's funny you, i you guys keep pointing to the food which i love because i i think in what one way that he he Improves upon Hitchcock or his or whoever he his influence is the the constant food. I, I think uh, I don't remember. I've seen a bunch of Hitchcock movies and a bunch of other movies. It's rare to have so much thematic obsession with the with with, with the food. You know, to g- keep going back to it, and then at the end of the movie, he's like, "I'm hungry." <laughs> like they're gonna just because that's how they met. That's how the two of them met. Is you know he was ordering food, and they just keep going back to that to the from the asparagus to uh, you know different kinds of mushrooms. I, I think I think that was really great. I, in fact, I'm not sure I even understand entirely what Anderson was saying uh, about which in, in a way, like you say, I like that. Uh, but I just I like that that he was so into it. You know. Um. Oh, well, I suppose like. Uh, uh, cuisine uh being a chef is it's almost like this, you're creating something aren't you you're creating right. a work, work of art and maybe, maybe that's it yeah maybe maybe he's sort of i wonder if like he, i can imagine him making a film set in that world you know what right. chef or something right yeah. being obsessive right yeah that would be interesting because there is like a perfectionist to it uh sure. you know uh but uh, yeah, uh, I wonder if, like, like you were saying, that the emphasis on food. Uh, but I've never seen someone get so upset over how their asparagus is. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it's not just the food. I mean, I just think I, I really wanted to say this earlier too. So I'm glad I have the opportunity that Paul Thomas Anderson just has this loving attention to detail, and not just detail, but depth. And I think that one of the great things about cinema is is depth, is the, you know, putting a camera in a place and showing literally like where you are, you know, putting putting you in that place that it's trying to sort of, you know, transport you to. It's one of the biggest criticisms I have of TV. Everybody wants to kind of like talk about TV right now, but that that's still missing that kind of like slowing down that book, slow breathing in of that house, you know, that just. You know, that sort of ambiance that's created, that atmosphere. Um, and I, I just, 
I love that. And so from the food to the candle lit, you know, rooms to the, um, you know, the factual, uh, you know, perfectly, perfectly fetishized, you know, clothing and just, you know, the, just everything about it is so immaculately, like, uh, detailed and taken in. So I, that's, that's, I mean, my biggest takeaway, I think, from the movie overall. Oh, yes. And, and the camera uh, is, is almost like a, another character. Like it's uh, my one of my biggest criticisms of Ladybird is that the camera doesn't do anything; it's just <laughs> static. Where yeah. here the the camera is sweeping, it's moving, and 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 that's what I find is so. And the tight sometimes you get those really tight close-ups, like the um, it's it's kind of imposing uh, when he's taking her measurements and. They're, they're really close. It's, it's kind of erotic, right. but he's invading her privacy, but she's allowing him to do so. And it's just that the framing of it is it's just, you don't get that, like you say, with television. It's all very, mm-hmm. um, you know, plop the camera here, let the actors do the acting, and then that's it. There's no sort of going further beyond that. So yeah, I, medium, it, close up, mm, medium. Yeah, yeah. Occasionally yeah. you get a long shot. <laughs> you mentioned the, the, the movements as well. When you go back to, I'm going to go back to Boogie Nights and Magnolia as well. You, the sweeping, the pans, left and right. Boogie Nights, it's almost like you, you're on roller skates yourself when you're watching it. Um, same with Magnolia. And then with um, Punch Drunk Love, he kind of did the, the sweeps, but they were a lot slower. And then in there will be blood it's almost like he stopped going sideways and started going like forwards and backwards so you know the same cinematographer as well Robert Eldswitz so he does he obviously knows what he wants movement wise as well as what's in the frame you know and I do think it's interesting from that year that uh, There Will Be Blood came out that is my favourite movie of the tw- of the 2000s the Audis as, as I, some people call them <laughs> um, my favorite movie of that decade, the 2000s, is uh, No Country for Old Men, which was, of course, photographed by uh, Roger Deakins, who I think we're talking about a little bit later. Um, and those two movies, I mean, were, were pretty much it that year. 2007, I feel like, was just No Country for Old Men, There Will Be Blood. Yeah. And I constantly fight myself over which is the better film. Because one, and they're completely different. You know, one is this kind of 70s, I mean, almost 70s, like, style neo-noir you know revenge thriller um which is great in its own right um and then you have there will be blood which is this like almost it's almost like a bio biopic but in total like shot in like lavish detail and incredible cinematography and just it's like it's almost like being being transported into that book by upton sinclair so i um i think that i think that that those great artists working and and um kind of honing their craft is just is a, a great thing to see and, and something I'm certainly appreciative of. Oh, I would just, uh, you were saying about There Will Be Blood uh, and mm-hmm. um, a lot a lot of that film is a silent movie. It just reminds right. me of, of the epics of, uh, you know, like uh, Intolerance and, and, and the stuff from D.W. Griffith. Like yeah. that mm-hmm. film... Right could have existed it's the same with phantom fred if you took out the, the swearing you could have had that film be made in the 50s but oh i'd love it when he's like give me the fucking dress <laughs> so it's just like, like not expecting the, the swearing and i was just like that is brilliant 
and it and it's like the just the response from the woman is like, um, okay, <laughs> here have you here have the dress type of thing, but like, like you could take the the sil- long silent periods which poor Thomas Anderson does in his films, where it's you have to read the scene you can't you know you're not knowing what the characters motivations are or what they're thinking and I, he treats the audience very you know like it treats us like uh, intellectuals it allows us to come to our own conclusions like you were saying about the master what the what the heck is that about <laughs> um, but I like how he leads it to a to our own conclusions a bit like with Nolan you know we were saying last week with like uh, we don't really know why certain things are happening and I suppose you were saying about Magnolia what what is the consequent you know the coincidence and stuff it's uh, it's a case of we're not led by the hand to this plot point that plot point and this conclusion we're left to uh, think think about it ourselves, and and that's something that we we're rarely getting nowadays. I, uh, right. So when it comes along, I, I I really think we should be celebrating with it a lot more. But yeah, I was just thought there's so much going on in in um, Paul Thomas Anderson's work that we could just be here forever. So. Yeah, we could. <laughs> um, what is your favourite Paul Thomas Anderson? Um, I'm going to oh. sorry, oh. sorry, Bianca, go ahead. No, no, no. I was just going to say Phantom Fred. Um, I think it's his best film yet. So, um, it's like Rob was saying, it's it's the film of the year. I mean, I'm counting it as the film of the year 2017. Yeah. So, um, but I might uh, we'll see how this year goes. It might also be 2018 as well. But I I love it. So uh, I can't get enough of it. I really have just been listening to the music, watching every every interview I can get my hands on. So uh, I really want to go back and watch it again. Nice. But yeah, sorry. Um, yeah, I I probably I'm gonna have to watch. <clears throat> pardon me, I'm gonna have to probably watch Phantom Thread again just to just to really cement it in my mind of like what it is and like what I think about it completely. But um, I, I probably will say Magnolia is my favorite Paul Thomas Anderson movie. I just think it's its sweep is so grand. The music is incredible. Um, I mean, it just it just puts you there with these people and this kind of um, somewhat miserable, somewhat hilarious place. It's just you know it's funny and tragic. So yeah, uh, that, would, that would be mine. That's definitely mine as well. For I, I'm fairly certain I'm going to write about it, and I'm fairly certain we should do you know the, these directors' weeks. I think Paul Thomas Anderson. Yep. He's only made, you know, so many films, but I think we could easily get a week worth of content out of this guy. Is that, is that yeah. good? Uh, Daniel, what's... You said Boogie Nights? Oh, Boogie Nights, yeah. But if you do write about Magnolia, uh, can I write a counterpoint? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you write a piece about all... the coincidences. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You've got to go back and watch it. That, okay. They do a massive setup that they never pay off. <laughs> I don't know. Come on. I told anyway. you it was... It's a it's a hook. It's a hook to get you watching the film. It's it's a it's a trick. 
it's not meant uh, to. So you can so you can be confused about it. Eighteen years later, you can still be thinking. So why <laughs> did he do that? Yeah. No, that's not really where I'm coming from to say. Oh, <laughs> I need to I'm more like that's a mistake. I mean, you can. You, sorry, but you know, you, yeah, you know, we, we could just agree to disagree. It, it's a nice, you know, as an Altman-like film, as an assemblage, you know, as a Nashville or whatever or a mash. <laughs> it's strong. It's fine. You know, but. I get frustrated. At the, it's like he had an idea and he just, he, you spend that much time on it. I know, you know, you, you okay, well, let, let's move on to something else. <laughs> it does feel like when you go see anim, animation at the cinema, then you get, you get a little animation at the beginning that's like it, but not, you know, it's a bit like, like the Oleg film, you know. Oh, the Pixar little animation at the beginning. Yeah. Is that what you're yeah. saying? And you're like, what, oh. what, why is this on? Why, why can't I watch the main feature? <laughs> hey, so one one thing I want to say real quick is that the, the one, one real thing from Paul Thomas Anderson's life is that he was sitting in you know a theater and he was kind of watch, just watching a movie and he saw Philip Seymour often and was like you know I don't know what it is but that guy can act I need him in, again in my movies and of course you know he was in the first couple of his movies and he comes back for the master but um, and of course you know he he the, the few days ago was the anniversary of his of him sadly passing away but. Uh, it, I, look, I, I think that Philip Seymour Hoffman is probably one of the best actors to, to be on the silver screen. Um, I think that, and I think about that a lot, is that Paul Thomas Anderson was at least part of kind of bringing him into the into the light a little bit. And yeah. so I'm, I, I think about that for some we- weird reason, because I'm personally connected to movies, and it, it somehow is moving to me. But, um, they were really yeah, close I, I as like, well, weren't they? They were really close. So. Yeah, yeah, and I like his eye. I like uh, Anderson's eye for talent. He seems to really really no you know no no good talent when he sees it so i mean he managed to get a performance out of tom cruise and adam sandler so no that's high praise about Wahlberg. oh well yeah Wahlberg's great in that i mean yeah. he is you know, as that as dirk diggler he's great you know didn't Wahlberg say that he really regretted making boogie nights i i heard that somewhere last shot he said because of the uh several reasons uh, he d- he didn't like having to live up to what happens in the final shot in his regular life he also thought it sort of i don't know made him seem like a cd or performer or something i i wouldn't i don't think he regretted making it i mean it was a star making film for him i you know i don't know that he i i didn't hear him say that he wishes he was never in it i don't yeah. think that you know, i just I don't think- remember he regretted the. He probably should regret other things in his past. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think he regretted the. Yeah, like, the, the uh... that would be something. To <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just think he regretted having the operation to make his penis smaller. That's what. <laughs> Thank you. That's now it's all there. This is a perfect ending for this podcast. <laughs> yeah, let, it Let it hang out. Uh, uh, so, but uh, anyway, thank you very much, everyone. That, that was that was awesome. I, I have to see Phantom Fred obviously before the podcast, but now I have to see it even more. So see I will it on the big screen. I will. I will go venture out and okay. I'll see it. Um, yes, make sure you do. I will. I will. And, and uh, eat an omelet. You know. <laughs> Don't yeah. forget your asparagus. Right, yes, okay. And toast. Salt, butter, and yeah. okay. on the asparagus. No, 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 it's in oil. It's in oil, yeah. not in butter. He doesn't yeah. like it in butter. <laughs> right, I'm just writing this down, okay? <laughs> Great stuff, everyone. That that was excellent. Um, thank you, everyone. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, Bianca. Yep. 
And Thank we you. will probably see you or hear you next week. All right, go fuck yourself. That shit has nothing to do with me. All right, I run a legitimate business here. Listen to me. What's your name, sir? Answer me! What's your name, asshole? I'm Barry Egan! How do I know? You can be anybody, You're a bad head. person. You have no right taking people's confidence in your service. You understand me, sir? You're sick. No, no, no. Shut up! Shut the fuck you have up! You no right to take Shut up! Will you shut up? Shut up! Shut, 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 shut up! Shut up! Now! Are you threatening me, dick? Aren't you... You go fuck yourself! Oi! Fuck! Did you just say, go fuck myself? Yes, I did. That wasn't good! You're dead!